All right. Again, good to see you. Uh, we indeed live in strange times. Can anybody say amen to that? Amen. Yeah, we do. We live in crazy times. And you know, that's one of the reasons that this passage, these uh, two chapters that we've been looking at, we've, we've really rested in this in Matthew 24 and 25 for quite a while and for good reason because there's a lot of doctrine here and, and it's central to everything that you're going to read in the Bible. And so if we, if we have a good understanding of, of those things and where these events that Jesus is speaking of, where they fit into the grand scheme of things, it will help us better frame uh, everything we're reading. And, um, and it, will, it will really draw you, uh, it'll make the scriptures, I believe, much clearer to you, and they'll be easier to understand. And so we've been going through the Olivet Discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is speaking to four of his disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, Peter's brother, speaking to them on the Mount of Olives, which is just east of the Temple Mount. Uh, you remember the Mount of Olives is also the location of Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus, just um, prior to his arrest and crucifixion, where he would be there with his disciples. And he's giving them this message about things concerning the end times. And specifically, it's, it's very Jewish in nature. Because Jesus is speaking about a time that has not occurred yet. Meaning a time even to us today that is still yet future to us. He's speaking about this time that we've been looking at, Daniel's 70th week. This seven-year period of, of history on the earth and remember, the church, if you're a believer in Jesus, you will be raptured before this seven-year tribulation period on the earth. We believe that based on many scriptures and the types in the Bible. We've already gone through that. But that seven-year period will be a time that God will again begin to pour out his attention on the Jews again. And he's going to bring them through the fire. And, and many are going to die, including many Gentiles, during that tribulation period as God pours out his wrath on a world that has rejected his son. He's the only means of salvation. Do you know Jesus this morning? Do you have him as your personal Lord and Savior? Or is he just someone that you, you know, have an affinity with, but you don't have any, you're not reborn. Are you born again? And being born again is very simple. You just ask the Spirit of God to come into your heart and you confess your sins and give your heart to Christ it's, and ask him into your heart. It's really that simple. And then, then life really begins. But this time is going to be a period, and Jesus has been telling us as we've been going through this uh, chapter 24 specifically, verses 4 through 31, really speak of the events concerning this seven-year period. And it matches up pretty nicely actually, with the events of Revelation chapter 6 through 18, 19, somewhere in that area, that speak of the great tribulation before Christ comes back with all of his saints. And that's including you and I. You're going to look marvelous on those white horses, by the way. And again, I, I want my horse retrofitted with shotguns on the side. <laughs> Even though we're not going to use them, okay, I don't want, you know, the Lord's going to take care of all of this, but... Just for the look of it, you know, I'm, I'm being silly here. A little levity is good because we're getting into some pretty heavy stuff. But 
This seven-year period, Daniel's 70th week, in verses 4 through 31, we've looked at that. We've kind of dissected this chapter in the, the first half of the tribulation period. And then in the, sec- in the midpoint, in verse 15 of this chapter, we looked at the abomination of desolation, who's going to a, a world ruler that is yet to come on the scene, rising from Europe, who will cause the Jews to stop their, their um, offerings and sacrifices, which precludes that there has to be a temple on the Temple Mount. There's not one there today, is there? No, but once the church is removed, he is going to broker some kind of deal to allow them to build their temple. But after that midpoint, then we got into verses 16 through 18, 20, somewhere in that area where Jesus really talks about this second half of the Great Tribulation. And then in verse 29, he comes back to end it all. He comes back as a judgment to the world, and also to rescue his Jewish people. Because remember, the church has been raptured prior to this 70th week. We will be in glory with the Lord, and then God is going to preserve his Jewish remnant. He's going to be faithful to the promises that he's made to them. Many will perish, but many will come to faith. They will look upon him whom they have pierced, as it tells us in Zechariah, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for their only son, And they will cry out to him and he will hear them and he will rescue them. And he's going to rescue them from the rock city of Petra, we believe, in Basra. Fulfilling Isaiah 61 and Zechariah 14. Spoken of us again in in Revelation 12. These things, Jesus is going to rescue his remnant. And so now, as we look at... We're going to read verses 32 now because Jesus already spoke of his second coming. And now we're going to be looking at the rest of this chapter. Let's read from verse 32 down through 51. It'll go quick. It says, Now learn this parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves. You know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that he is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect." So who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you, that he will make him ruler over all his goods. 
But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, and he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth. Amazing. This chart that I have behind me is a layout of, of this Holy Week, this Passion Week of Jesus. I've been showing it up here for some time, and we've been kind of parked out here on the uh, Wednesday, which is uh, the 12th uh, of Nizon, April 1st. We know that date, and this is the time when Jesus, in 33 AD, was speaking to his disciples. And um, now, as we get into these uh, next verses, we're going to notice that they're parabolic in nature. In fact, there are uh, five parables that we can see in Matthew 24 specifically. We're going to see a couple more in Matthew chapter 25. Um, but the balance of 24 contains five parables, and really what they're doing is illuminating what Jesus had already taught his disciples in verses 4 through 31. Just solidifying in, uh, in, in terms of things that they know, because that's what a parable is. It's relating something that is knowable to them to something that is un unknown at the time, or even a mystery. That's what a parable is. So Jesus is just now reinforcing what he has already told them in verses 4 through 31 concerning the time of the end. The time of the end after the church is removed and focused on the Jewish nation specifically as God also pours out his wrath on the world and he preserves and delivers his remnant, his faithful remnant, to the end. But we see that the first parable is the fig tree. The second one in verse 36 through 39 is the days of Noah. The third parable in verse 40 and 41 is comparing two men and women. And the fourth one is verse 42 through 44, speaking of the faithful householder. And the fifth parable is the wise servant, 45 through 51. And so let's look at this first one, this parable of the fig tree, beginning in verse 32. Notice what Jesus says. He says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, it is true that a vineyard or a vine or a fig tree has commonly been used to personify Israel in the Bible. And I think the vineyard and the vine is even more obvious. The fig tree, it's a little, it can be a little ambiguous, but I believe it is also there too. But when we look at the vineyard, notice what it says in Isaiah. I'll just read it to you, Isaiah 5. It says, Now let me sing to my beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. And what is he speaking of? Israel, or Jerusalem, specifically. He dug it up and he cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the midst of it, also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. He was expecting fruit from this thing that he had built, and yet it wasn't bringing forth fruit. And he says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? 
Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please tell me, you that I, uh, please tell me what I will do to my, uh, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard, excuse me. And I will keep, I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I think that's happened, hasn't it? And I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. And then verse 7 tells us who the vineyard is. We, we, we kind of know in context, if you're, if you're a student of the Bible and you've read, you kind of pick up the idea very clearly. He says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So there it is. Now that's a vineyard, but what about a vine? In Psalm 80, verse 8, it says, You have brought a vine out of Egypt. And this is obviously is speaking of Israel. You have cast out the nations and planted it. He removed those seven nations. He caused Israel to come in out of Egypt into the land of Canaan, what you and I know is Israel today, and they uh, took over that land. Yes, and they killed the inhabitants, many of them. God wanted them to root the whole thing out. But they didn't. They failed even in that. And they lived with the consequences of the idolatry of those nations that they were supposed to drive out, that God had brought judgment upon, and he was using his own people to be the hammer of judgment against them because of their idolatry and all of their sins, that God had waited for hundreds of years before he finally brought judgment upon them. Isn't he a gracious God? He is. To individuals and to nations. And he did that. And he, and he says, uh, and I'm getting off track here because I get so excited talking about this. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. Who is the vine out of Egypt? It's Israel. You have cast out the nations and you planted it. In Jeremiah 2, it says, For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said, I will not transgress. When on every high, high hill and under every green tree you laid down, playing the harlot, yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality, how then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? I, I created you for a purpose, and why did you just walk away? Didn't Jesus say, I am the vine, and if you abide in me, you'll have much fruit? Well, when you cut yourself off from the, the vine, and you're a branch, you cut yourself off. You're not getting any nutrients. You're, you're going to die. And that's, in a sense, what Israel had done. They had removed themselves from any accountability. They removed themselves from God. We don't want anything to do with you. We're going to be like all the other nations. We're going to serve their gods. And have any of them really taken care of Israel like God has? Has any of them really preserved them like God has? Has anyone preserved us like Jesus has preserved and kept us? There's nobody. There's nobody who looks out for me and you like God himself. There are so many things. I should be dead and gone and the Lord has intervened in my life and preserved me and you. We've all got stories. And he has preserved you because he is the good shepherd. He's the shepherd of your souls. He's the captain of your salvation, if you're a believer. But are you a believer in Christ this morning? So important to be a believer in Christ. There's no one greater who will love you, even amidst all of your sin and, and nastiness. He will put his arms around you. I don't know about you, but that warms my heart. Because he knows everything about me. None of you. My wife doesn't even know really who I am 
I mean, she knows a lot. She's been married to me for 27 years. But there's one who knows me even better. The only other person who knows me better is Christ himself. And he knows my motives, why I do the things I do. He knows exactly. And this is the one who loves us. And he loves you. In spite of the things that you've done, in spite of the things that you may even do, come to Christ. He's the only one who really, truly loves you. And as he has been so faithful to not only the church, he is also going to be faithful to his, the apple of his eye. And the apple of his eye is Israel. And he is not done with them. He is going to fulfill every single promise. One jot or one tittle of the law will not pass, but all will be fulfilled. And he will be faithful because he is the promise keeper. He cannot deny himself. He cannot lie. There's no reason for him to lie. There's no reason because he knows everything. I lie sometimes because I'm trying to make something happen because I don't know certain things. Well, God knows everything. He doesn't need to lie. He can just say it like it is. And I love that about him. But it's also the fig tree in, in, in contrast here. I don't think this is the clearest of those titles. The vineyard and the vine are very obvious who it is. The fig tree, it's very possible. In Hosea 9 verse 10 it says this, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness, God says, and I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor, meaning they went to, they fled the Lord and really went, uh, clung to idolatry, and they separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing they loved. Isn't it true that we, we become like that which we worship? If you worship Jesus, your life's going to have a whole different tenor about it, a tenor about it. But if you worship something else, if you worship a a rock star, if you worship an automobile, if you worship a person, you're going to become like that which you worship. And these idols that they served were nothing more than demons disguised behind these little shaped idols that they formed. And you become like the spirit of that demon. That thing that you worship, you will become just like them. In Joel chapter 1, verse 6, it says, For a nation has come up against my land. Notice who the land belongs to. <laughs> the land of Israel belongs to who? It belongs to God. Oh, by the way, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Right? It belongs to him. For a season, it's in the hands of the enemy right now. And we see it. Just turn on the news. But God says, but this land belongs to me. And I'm going to give it to the Jews because I've made promises to them. And everybody since then is trying to get it out of the hands of the Jews. Even our government is trying to cut it in half and give half to those who want to destroy Israel. What lunacy. Would you do that in any city? An enemy that's bent, it's in their charter to destroy you, to push you into the midst of the sea. And then you're going to say, well, let's just be friends together. Hey, it doesn't work. What lunacy. But God says, that's my land. And, and, and newsflash, <laughs> when he comes back, he's going to establish his throne in Jerusalem. And there's going to be no contention. There's going to be no United Nations coming against him and saying, well, you can't do that. Watch me. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. And in his grace, he just says, I'm just going to choose Israel. That's where I'm going to make my, well, you can't do that. Well, it's about the size of Rhode Island. 
He's going to do what he pleases. And it's not going to be fun for the world when he comes back. He's going to smash all of the kingdoms. Take notice of that, governments of the world. When Jesus comes back, he is the rock formed without hands that's going to smash all of the kingdoms of the world. And there's going to be one kingdom. Can I get a hallelujah out of this crowd? Yeah, there's going to be one kingdom, and it's going to be Jesus on the throne, right? And you and I are going to rule and reign with him. I don't deserve it. Neither do you, by the way, but I don't deserve that. But that's what he says. Now, and then he goes on, he says, For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine. He has ruined my fig tree. So it's possible. But although Israel may be referred to as a fig tree, the context here, and this is what's important about reading the Bible, context is everything. Don't just take one word and follow what it means and then uh, uh, superimpose that, that, the meaning of that word in every place that it occurs. You've got to look at the context. Context is everything. If you, if you understand anything this morning, context is important. And in the context of this, we know that it means something different. This is not about, when he's talking about the fig tree, he's not speaking of, in context, specifically about Israel. He's talking about the brevity of time. From the time of these uh, acts, these things that, are, um, that he's spoken of, until the time that he comes back. It's going to happen like clockwork. It's going to be very sudden. It's going to happen in just in the order that he said it's going to be. Now, some have thought that Israel becoming a nation in May 14th, 1948, was what was meant by the fig tree shooting its branches out, that the generation that saw this was the generation that would see the coming of Jesus. That, that's what, that, and I believe that for a season, but, you know, many years ago, and I really didn't know much, and I believe that too. I believe that, you know, that, that this was the generation because Israel came back into the land, and based on this scripture, I thought, well, 20 to 40 years is about a generation, roughly. And even Hal Lindsey, who I respect and love his books, and he's right on a lot of the ways, but in this, in, it, he, he actually believed that, and, and that's okay because he wrote the book, The Late Great Planet Earth, in 1970, and he believed that in 1948, that because of this verse, that the Lord would return, meaning in his second coming, within a generation. But there's a problem. 75 years have already transpired since 1948, and not only hasn't the second coming occurred, the rapture hasn't occurred, but there's no indication that Daniel's 70th week has even begun. Plus, there is no talk or possibility right now of a Jewish temple being rebuilt on the Temple Mount. It's not happening right now. It will after the church is removed. So what does this allusion to the fig tree mean? We know Matthew 24 and 25 is about the Jews in the days before the return of Christ. So it could, it could have a secondary application or reference to the Jews. But the most obvious meaning is to relate it to the nearness of the second coming of Christ from the, these events that were spoken prior in verses 4 through 31. Jesus was giving a parable here. Parables relate things that are familiar uh, and knowable to things that are not known. So just as the fig tree puts forth its leaves before the fruit shows itself in summer, the second coming of Christ will occur immediately after these things that he's been speaking about in the tribulation. Does that make sense? And I'm sure it is sure to happen. And there, and there won't be a delay. It will happen exactly as the Lord had said. 
One commentator said the significance of Israel back in the land is not to be understated. And certainly it isn't. It is prophetic and incredible, but it has no bearing in this context. So we can't look at the, the, the fig tree shooting forth its branch. Does everybody follow me? We can't look at, you know, just because 1948 was when they... It is significant prophetically, but that's not what Jesus is speaking of. He's speaking about how quickly after those events come, he's going he's gonna to return. That's the context. So verse 33, it says, So you also, when you see all these things, know that he... Your Bibles may say it, but in the, in the margin you'll notice that many manuscripts, many Greek manuscripts will say he, which makes more sense. Whether it's it, meaning, you know, um, when you see all these things, know that it is near. He's speaking about his second coming. So whether you think of the second coming or, or he, because he's the one, he's the object of the second coming, it makes no difference. Verse 34, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation, underline this word, will by no means, this generation, Jesus is speaking about the tribulation, isn't he? We've been looking at that. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass till all things take place. Now, the word generation here is genea, and it literally means a, uh, an age uh, uh, a, a generation, a time frame, the whole multitude of men living at the same time, or it could be an age, uh, a space of 30 to 33 years. But the first time we see this word in the New Testament was in Matthew chapter 23, verse 36, when Jesus, remember, was speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. We saw this word, that was the, the very, just previously to this, the word is there in Matthew 23, 36. And what does it say? Let me just read it. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets, adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, If we had only lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Jesus just really leveling them at this point. He says, Fill up then the measure of, how you, of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. But that on you may come, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of, the right, of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And here it is. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So what generation was Jesus referring to here in verse 36? Was it a generation way afar off or was it he's talking to them? He was talking to them. Right? I mean, just read it in context. You know he's speaking. He even said in the very beginning of this, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, and then he's talking to them. All of these things, and certainly that did come to pass in 70 AD. They would be destroyed by the Romans. He's speaking of that generation. All these things will come upon this generation. Okay, now that was in chapter 2336. So, the grammar and the context, again, give away the answer there. And I've, I've heard of a, a really wonderful phrase. It says, if the first sense makes sense, then don't go looking for any other sense. I like that. Just read it in context. You will know. Who he's speaking of. Read it again if you have to. Look at who he's talking to, what, it, what it's about. 
It's not a mystery. We just have to have some reading comprehension in the Spirit of God. The Bible is very clear. When, it's, when it means to speak in metaphors, it does. And when it means to be literal, take the Bible literally. Unless there is something that occurs that shows you that something else is happening, some other literary technique, like when it says that the Lord will cover us with his feathers. I mean, we know that he's not going to cover it. He doesn't have feathers. But the idea is a protection. The, the metaphor we understand, and we know by reading it. But take it literally. You will be in less trouble as you read the Bible and study it if you take it literally. Just take it literally. So, going back here now to verse 34, what generation is Jesus referring to? Is it the generation? You know, when he speaks here in uh, verse 34, and he says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. All these things that Jesus has been talking about. So, is it the generation of, of the disciples who were there at the time in 33 AD listening to Jesus? Or is it the generation of those living in the times that Jesus is referring to in the great tribulation yet future? Which is it? Yes, it is. See, you get it. And you can because it's not hard. You just got to look at the context. You know, again, those two words mean the same thing, but in context, they mean completely different things. The first one in 2336 was local. It meant to that generation that is standing before him, they are going to experience the destruction of Jerusalem. But now, as he's speaking of this great tribulation period that is yet future, he's saying that generation will not pass in that time until all these things are completed. Now, speaking of yet a future generation, now I hope I don't lose you in this, but I, I just thought the Lord showed me something, and this is really interesting. Uh, John the Apostle was there, right, on Wednesday, April 1st, 33 AD. He was listening to Jesus along with James and uh, Peter and Andrew, and John knew that Jesus was not referring to the Apostles' generation as he, he spoke this to them. Maybe he did initially, but I'm going to show you that later on we can see that he changed his mind or perhaps didn't even have that mind to begin with. I believe that John knew. He either knew it then, but he certainly knew after 70 AD because notice that John, after 70 AD, he wrote a, his first epistle and he spoke of the Antichrist that was to come. Okay. Now, many believe that these um, letters, all three of uh, John's epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, were written after 70 AD, actually sometime between 80 and 95 AD, toward the latter part of the first century. Do you follow? And so, in that letter, what did he say? And again, he wrote this letter after the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember that. John wrote this, "'Little children, it is the last hour.'" And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which the, we know that it is the last hour. So John here is acknowledging that the Antichrist is coming. Now, John didn't believe that the Antichrist revealed himself in 70 AD. Now, there are some preterists, and a preterist is someone who believes that all these prophecies were fulfilled in the 70 AD invasion of Rome and Jerusalem. They believe that everything, including the second coming of Christ, happened in the first century, including the return of Christ. Is he here? 
No, he's not. But they spiritualize it and they warp it so bad, there's no possible way. Jesus was speaking of something yet future. And John, writing this letter, somewhere between 80 and 95 AD, after the destruction of the temple, John knew or learned that the abomination of desolation was yet future, even when he wrote that. Does that make sense? And why is that such a big deal? Because remember in verse 15 in Matthew 24, when Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, was Jesus talking about something that would happen in 70 AD? No, because Daniel the prophet, there were a lot of things this man of sin would have to do, and none of them happened in 70 AD. But they are going to happen yet future to us. And John, writing the letter, follow me, after the destruction of Jerusalem, he wrote his letter and says the Antichrist is still yet to come. Does that make sense? So when you read the Bible like that, what you're doing is looking for internal evidence. Really important to do. And you put the puzzle together. Now, let's examine just the chronology. (laughs) And it'll make it a little clearer. Jesus speaks on the Mount of Olives, number one, in Matthew 24 and 25, right? In 33 AD. And then in 70 AD, Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans. And then at least 20, uh, at least uh, 10 or maybe even 20 or more years after the fact, John the Apostle writes his first letter speaking of the Antichrist who is yet to come. Now, if John knew that he had already come in the first century, he would have said he's already come. This, you know, this is it. But he didn't. Is everybody following me? I I know this is kind of heady, but if you read the Bible like that, a lot of these discrepancies or confusion can be, um, even though I confuse you in the process, can be cleared up. And you look at it simply like that, and you're like, oh my gosh. John never believed that it happened in 70 AD. So the whole preterist uh, idea that all of these Daniel's 70th week and the second coming of Christ happening in the first century, it all falls apart very rapidly. That's, that's just one example. And the Lord just showed that to me a couple days ago. And there are many other reasons that are even better. But anyway, so the point is, is that John the Apostle knew that Jesus was speaking of events that were yet future, events that John probably knew he wouldn't even see. And, and so um, let's go on and look in verse 34. Notice when it says, uh, I say to you that this generation, that generation at that time, will by no means pass away until all these things take place. What all things? Those things refer to what Jesus has been talking about. Again, in verses 4 through 31, speaking of Daniel's 70th week and his returning. And then he goes on in verse 35 and he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now, this is interesting because Jesus here is speaking prophetically because there indeed is coming a time when heaven and earth will pass away. In Isaiah 65, Isaiah, writing 700 years before Christ was incarnate, wrote, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, God says, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. And I say, hallelujah to that. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to like exchange this earth For a new one, aren't you? I mean, I don't know. Are things really that good? Is Washington, I don't know. 2 Peter, what does it say? But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away 
with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we... Peter, speaking on behalf of the church. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, we look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we have, when Jesus comes back to the earth, we'll have a thousand years with him on this earth. But at the end of that, this whole thing is going to be dissolved and God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. This is where we get that phrase, it's all going to burn. Have you heard a Christian say that? You know, they go out and they, they buy a, you know, a Cadillac Escalade, you know, a black one with the tinted windows and the whole nine yards. And they're really proud of it. They're waxing it. And another brother comes up and says, hey, man, it's all going to burn. Right? It is. All of it. Everything is going to be consumed. Now, Revelation 21, what does it tell us? At the end of the millennial reign, at the end of the thousand years, it says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Wow, it seems like the same author who wrote Isaiah and the one who wrote Revelation, it's almost like there's somebody involved in this whole thing. Of course, it is. It's the Holy Spirit of God. That's what makes the Bible so wonderful more than any other religious book. Prophecy. Only God can tell the end from the beginning. There is no one else on the earth who can do that. Allah can't do that. Buddha can't do that. Confucius can't do that. David Koresh can't do that. Jim Jones can't do that. The Moonies, nobody can do that but God alone. He knows everything, the end from the beginning. That's why he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. He can speak things as if they've already come to pass. And that's literally what we're doing, aren't we? He's showing us things to come, and everything is right on charge. It's right on track, folks. There's no need to fear, even though it's hard to live in the time that we live in because it's lawlessness. But don't get discouraged because God has a plan, and his plan is being carried out right now, and you don't need to fear. You just hang on tight to Christ, and he's going to see you through this, okay? Can I get an amen? amen. You know, everybody just do me a favor. On, on a, just smile. Ready? Two, three. Yes, I had up my camera. Look, this is a church that believes it, right? Yes, absolutely. In Revelation 21, it says, Now I saw heavens and a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. And you get the idea. It's all there. You can read it for yourself. And so when he says, but my words will by no means pass away, and this is so true because Jesus in Matthew 5 said this, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. A jot or a tittle are these little marks in the Hebrew alphabet where they would write an alphabet and these little jots or these little tittles, these little marks that they would make signified something. It changed the word, the meaning of the word sometimes. But in Peter's first epistle, what did he say? He goes, um, 
The word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as the grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. Here he's quoting from the prophet. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of God, what? Endures forever. Now this is the word by which by the gospel was preached to you. In Isaiah 40, verse 8, it says, the grass withers. This is, what, um, this is what Peter was quoting. He says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Everything else, not so much. But God's word will stand and it will come to pass. Do you have confidence in what you have in your lap today? You can. You can have every confidence. You may not understand all of it. And to be honest with you, I don't understand many things. But what I do know, I, I, it's, it's very clear. And you can trust it. You can put it to the bank. You can bet your life on it. You know why? Because so many people have. Do you know how many people have died to preserve the word of God so that we would have it in our hands? Do you know how many people died when they gave them an opportunity to recant their belief? They said, I will not. And they made them candles in, 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 a, in, a, in a yard and, and they lit them on fire. Many martyrs that went up that way. They torched them. You can take my life. The word of God stands forever and that's, gonna, that's not going to change. And I'm not going to recant on what I believe. I know it's true. Do you know what's true? Do you know the gospel's true? Do you know that Jesus is the Son of God? That he is coming back for us? Do you believe that? Are you willing? I mean, hopefully none of us will be in the position where somebody's going to, you know, you know, threaten our life unless we recant that belief. But we can't. We can't. I was thinking about this on the way here. And again, I'm a, I grew up in a police officer's household, okay? My brother and my mom, you, you guys know this, but I, I get a little morbid sometimes. And literally, on the way here this morning, I was thinking of this very thing. I don't know why, it just came into my head. I'm like, if somebody put a gun to my head, and again, I, I'm not going to talk a big game here, because I don't know really what I would do. I'd like to think that I would stand strong and say, you know, go ahead and pull the trigger, pal. You know, but I thought to myself, what would be the right thing for me to do? <laughs> somebody says, you recant your belief in Christ or I'm going to pull the trigger. I thought to myself and I, I thought, Lord, I hope that I'm, I, at that moment that I put a big smile on my face and say, do what you got to do because seconds later I'm going to be in the presence of my Savior. Amen. Now, whether I would do that, I'm not going to boast, okay? But I would like to think, that's how I would like to go if, if that really happened. That I'd rather go in my sleep, actually, after a, after a large meal. When the Cowboys have won the Super Bowl, I know they're not playing today. <laughs> so I digress. So anyway, so let's go on now to the second parable here. Oh, my goodness, time is flying here. But notice, uh, this is the days of Noah. But of that day and hour, meaning the second coming of Christ, no man, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only, Jesus said. And this is true, because right now we don't know when the second coming is going to happen. We certainly don't know when the rapture is going to occur either, because it is signless, meaning when the rapture occurs, there's no signs that precede the, the, the rapture of the church. It's going to happen, and it's imminent. And not everybody's going to see it, except if you're watching somebody, if you're looking at a believer and you're having a conversation and the rapture occurs, be prepared for a hocus-pocus act. Because they're going to they're vanish right before your eyes. But those who go through the great tribulation, 
Those who go through the great tribulation will only know the general time frame when the second coming will occur because of the timing that is laid out for us in the scripture. But they won't know the exact day. They won't know the exact hour. Although if they're students of the word, they're going to get very close. And the good news is, is that those who are saved and looking for Christ during that time will know that their deliverance is coming very soon. I don't know about you, but that will be a very encouraging thought for them. Because they can go and they can say, well, 1,260 days. We're getting close. We're getting close. Don't know the exact day or the exact hour, but I know it's probably going to be within a week now. If they're students of the word, they may be able to pinpoint it that close. But you've got to understand, the church won't be here. So the apostasy and the delusion upon the world is going to be so great, this is not going to be really held in great esteem at all except for the remnant that really believes and the Jewish remnant that are going to be delivered. Verse 37, it says, But as the days of Noah were, Jesus said, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So what were the days of Noah like? Well, let me read to you some things out of Genesis. (laughs) This will uh, be quite alarming. It says in Genesis 6, Now it came to pass, when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, the Benai Elohim, these are fallen angels, FYI, saw the daughters of men, and yes, this is spooky, it's very spooky, they saw that the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all that they chose, and the Lord said, Normally, that would be okay for a man and a wife to be together. God ordained marriage, but God says something interesting here. Seeing this, these fallen angels taking these mortal women to, uh, to wife and having uh, relations with them and having children, God would say this, and the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And then it says in verse 4, there were giants in the earth in those days. The word for giants is Nephilim. Anybody heard of the Nephilim? And also afterwards, speaking of after the flood, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, even after the flood, they were, there were children born to them, and these were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And you know who was one of those who came from the Nephilim? Through, through the line of Anak and all these, there's a, there's a genealogy of these people. Remember Goliath? He was one of the sons of the giants. That's why genetically he was a nightmare. The guy was over nine feet tall. He had six toes and six fingers. A genetic nightmare. The, the Mayo Clinic would love to do experiments on this guy. And then the Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth, and that every, notice, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Did it take God by surprise? No, of course it didn't. He knew. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created on from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Notice that it was because of the wickedness that God brought judgment upon the whole earth. 
It was because of the wickedness. In verses 1 through 3, we also saw that these fallen angels, these Nephilim, they were also having sexual relations with human women, and they gave birth to a people group that were unusually tall. They terrorized the people of the earth before and after the flood. The Nephilim, by definition of their name, they were tyrants and bullies, and they seemingly part human and part demon. That's pretty scary, folks. Does that sound a little twisted and weird? Not as weird as what we're seeing on TV today. Where do they get that material from? (laughs) In, In Numbers 13, notice Numbers 13 was written after the flood. Notice what it says. But the men who came up and came up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, meaning when Joshua and Caleb and the 12 or the other 10 went to spy out the land, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. This was the record of the 10 that were unfaithful. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all of the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. And then in verse 33 it says, then there we saw the giants and the The original word in the Hebrew is Nephilim. The descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So without getting too far into this dark topic, this kind of demonic activity is getting more frequent, even as we approach the end of the age, isn't it? Is it possible? I'm just going to throw out something here. Is it, is it possible that all the UFO sightings and the alien encounters and abductions that people have sworn testimony concerning are nothing more than demonic activity? Maybe that's why our, even our own government is so quiet about it, because they, they don't understand it. And because most are faithless, the only way that they can uh, reconcile this thing is, well, they've got to be aliens from other planets they got to be aliens from another world. So people under the influence of drugs, they've dabbled in the occult and they've had physical relations with these beings. Have you heard of that? And usually the occult and drug abuse is part of the equation. Women having intercourse with these spiritual beings that manifest them. I don't want to freak anybody out here this morning. If you're a believer, you don't have to worry about any of this stuff, but this is, this is twisted, weird, wacky stuff. And we're seeing it in our days now. And it's alarming, and it ought to be, because we're getting close to the end. I think we're getting close. What do you think? Jesus, or uh, the... the, the The author says, the earth also, in Genesis 6, verse 11, was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And this was before the flood. How much more so now? The whole earth is corrupted. And you and I, thank God, have been saved from the corruption I mean, we still have this old nature that wants to express itself, but we also have a new nature, the Spirit of God living in us. And thank God for that. And you have a ticket punch to heaven if you're a believer in Christ. You don't have to worry about these dark things. And God said to Noah, verse 13 in Genesis 6, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. In verse 17, he says, Behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. 
Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, a total of eight souls. So the earth was filled, completely corrupt, demonic activity was rampant, and these are things that we're seeing in our own time. All we got to do is turn on the news. I believe we're getting close. What do you think? Verse 38, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And uh, so for years, Noah had been preaching of the judgment that was coming and no one paid attention. In other words, they were just keeping the status quo. Just keep the status quo. And we see that even today. And he goes on in verse 39, he says, and they did not know until the flood came and took them all away so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Let me ask you a a question. Was the flood of of Noah's day, was that judgment or was it deliverance? It was both, really, right? But it was a judgment on the earth, but eight souls were preserved, right? Jesus is saying the same thing. As the days of Noah were, there's going to be some that are going to be taken away to judgment. Verse 39, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. I don't know this gentleman, but a man named Robert Gauvet had this quote, and I thought it was interesting. He says, the love of the world is displayed by men being given over to eating and drinking. Had they believed the message of wrath just about to come, they would have fasted and wept. (laughs) I find that interesting. And it's really no different today. This is why I believe we're close to the end, because people are doing the same thing. You tell them, and they just don't want to hear it anymore. But the 144,000 Jews sealed and the other believers in the tribulation, they will continue to share that gospel to a world whose ears at that time could still care less. Some will come, but the delusion will be so great it will be a smaller remnant But instead, they're going to embrace all ungodliness and perversity. All ungodliness and perversity. In 2 Timothy, uh, Paul exhorting his young protege, he says, preach the word. He says, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come, and I think we're here, folks. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, YouTube guys. Be really careful on YouTube, folks. Know your Bible, because not everybody on YouTube, if they're standing behind a pulpit like this, is telling you the truth. And I would encourage you to check me in the Word of God. If you see something that's heretical, I need to hear about it. But be a Berean. Know your Bible. See if these things are so. If they're not, then let's talk. But don't just listen and believe everything you hear because there are many deceivers in the world. And not all of them are, you know, you know deep-seated deceivers. Sometimes we, there's a difference between, um, there's a difference, I believe, with, um, you know, false doctrine and maybe just getting some facts wrong. That There's a difference, Right? Somebody tells me that the blood of Christ is no longer efficacious for covering my sin, then we're going to have a problem. But if somebody comes and says, hey, I really believe that you know, the, tribu- the, the rapture is going to hurt, you know, happen in the mid, midpoint of this tribulation period, I'm, I'm not going to like, 
I'm not going to argue with you too much. I don't believe it, but I'm not going to, you know, you could, we can still be saved and have a difference of opinion on a few things. Does that make sense? But we live in a time like even now. The hearts of people have become so calloused, and now they're just mocking Christians and Christianity. And I would encourage you to read uh, Romans chapter 1 because it speaks so clearly of what's happening in our country right now. Just utter lawlessness. Utter lawlessness. And this is the way the world is right now. And this is America right now. And repent, America. And the church in America, let's turn from our wicked ways and let's turn back to God because the time is short and it's time for the church to come out of our slumber. Let's be about our Father's business because that is what he has called us to do. That is the marching orders he gave us in Matthew 28 with the Great Commission. Go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, which we are now at the end of this age. I don't know when it's going to end. I mean, I know when it's going to end, but I don't know the date. But I know when it does happen, we're going to be gone. At least the church age will be finished. But the end of the age is really when Christ returns. That is the real end of the age. Also note that in in the flood of Noah's day, it was a worldwide judgment, just like the second coming will also be a worldwide judgment. And notice also that it was the transgressors that were taken away in judgment and not the righteous. Now look at with me in verse 40. We'll probably just do verse 40 and 41 here, and then we'll probably have to stop here for today. But notice, what, and this gets a lot of people twisted here, but notice what it says in verse 40. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. So an understanding of this word taken here is in the context of judgment. Because that's what Jesus is talking about, right? The judgment of Noah. He's speaking about those who will be taken away to judgment. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other will be left. Because if you miss that detail, this passage will become very misconstrued and it's going to confuse your eschatology, your study of end time things. But he says, he goes on, he says, two men will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and the other left. Again, this sounds very rapturesque, doesn't it? It sounds like the rapture, doesn't it? It does, honestly. Uh, you know, you know, I, don't, I used to think that too. I was confused about it too. But this passage is speaking of judgment for those who are taken. And here's why. The verb taken in verse 40 and 41 is a Greek word paralambano. Not that that really matters to you, but in, which in this context refers to those who are taken away in destruction. It's not anybody being raptured and saved. The word can mean to receive or to take unto, but here in the context, okay, because that's very important, and the obvious comparison to the judgment in Noah's day is extremely clear, isn't it? As the days of Noah, when, he, when they, you know, they were taken away to judgment, so also will be when the Son of Man comes. 
So when we make that comparison, the, I, the context is very clear. And incidentally, this is the same exact word that is used when Jesus was taken away to be crucified. Remember when they, delivered, when they took him away? It says, then he delivered him to, to them to be crucified, and then they took Jesus and led him away. This word took is paralambano. And the context of the word, they put that word in there, and in context we know he was taken away to judgment. So the comparison with the flood is given as an example that the context is indeed judgment. Does that follow? It can't be the rapture. It can't be the rapture. Now at the second coming, all evildoers, all evildoers excuse me, will ultimately be killed and sent to Hades to await their final judgment at the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium. And Revelation 20, 11 through 15 tells us that. But to see the rapture of the church here in any of these three passages, you would need to change, number one, your view from a pre-tribulation rapture to a post-tribulation rapture. And the post-tribulation viewpoint would require you to not take the Bible literally, as well as neglecting a lot of very direct scriptures and types in the scripture. Does that make sense? This is not the rapture. If you do believe it's the rapture, then you're going to have to change your viewpoint of when the tribulation occurs. Because if Jesus is speaking of uh, the time right in his second coming, and, 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 and this happens right after that, then you have to change your, your, your viewpoint here. But that's not what it means. It literally means taken away to judgment. It's important to look into that because if you don't, everything else is going to feel off to you. So, again... We're going to have to pause here and pick up here next week. I intended to get through everything, but that's okay. Um, context. When you read your Bible, pay close attention to the context. Context will deliver you from a lot of error, and it'll help you. Because doctrine is important, folks. And all it requires a lot of times is just some diligent study. You know, like Paul would tell to Timothy, you know, show yourself to be a, a, um, um, to be a worker, ready to show, show yourself approved. And the idea is be diligent in the scriptures. And look into those things and see what these things say. And look at the meanings and, and look at some different viewpoints. And then look at it and be as literal as you can. The Bible's meant to be taken literally. Now, there's some things you have to be aware of, but once you get over that, you can, you can get through it and it'll make sense. And, and then if, you, if we believe these things are, are true, and I believe they are because the English or the, the, the language and the grammar all support these things, they do, and I can show you if you're interested, then everything's going to make a lot more sense. And you're going to have a lot more confidence in the word of God. Not in your study, but that what Jesus said he meant. And he's going to bring it to pass. And so be encouraged with all of this. And, 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 and again, the, 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 when we talk about this passage, these 24 and 25, there's a, or 24 and 25, there's a lot of doctrine here. But the practical application 
is just as important. And I've said it for the last couple of weeks, but we have to let these things get into us. We have to learn them and read them and put the pieces together. And it'll, it'll encourage our hearts because we live in perilous times. And as we go on in this time that we're living in now, bring a friend. Bring somebody from your neighborhood. Bring a co-worker. You know, the church, we need to reach out to people and bring them into church again. Bring them kicking and screaming if necessary. Because they need to hear it. Because they're not going to hear it anywhere else. They need to, they're they're, they're going to hear it here. And I know a lot of other churches that teach it. Teach the truth of what God says. I'm not going to give you my opinion. I may give you my opinion, but hopefully my opinion is based upon this and not something else. Right? So important. Let it affect you. And, and may it produce within us a desire. Not only for purity. I mean, what did it say? If we, if we have this hope within us, the apostle says, if we have this hope of eternal life and the coming of Christ, meaning for the church, to rapture us, to take us from here, translate us, and bring us up to him to meet him in the clouds. If we believe that, if we have this hope within us, then we will purify ourselves. Meaning, we don't purify ourselves of my own, but Jesus does that by his blood. And I have to say that because somebody will take me out of context and say, there it is, he said that, you know, and I'm, no, no, no. Only the blood of Christ purifies us. But practically speaking, I have to do something with it, don't I? Doesn't Paul talk about um, putting off the old man and putting off the deeds of the flesh and putting on the new man who is in Christ Jesus? Doesn't he talk about that? Isn't that practically what it means? It does. So that means that if I have this hope within me, it ought to change my life. It ought to change the way I think about the world, about my own life. It ought to bring a gravity to my life to realize, oh my goodness, as I'm looking around and I'm seeing things, I'm like, Lord, there's something really wicked happening right now. Anybody aware? Something really, really wicked happening. In the world, but especially in our country. So what is it going to do? What are we going to, how are we going to respond to that? And that's the thing I want to share with you, the practical side of this. Don't let it just get in your head, but let it affect your life. Because these things are life and death. This truth that I've been sharing with you, that Jesus has been sharing with you, is life and death. Literally, life and death. Eternal life and eternal death. And it ought to do that work in me, and it also ought to give me compassion and a love for the lost. And can I just be transparent with you? <laughs> I'm going to be. Because I, 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 I don't want to be any other way. My heart can get as hard as yours. When I look around and I see things, my heart just gets, I, I, I just, sometimes I have to just go for a drive. I have to go in a room and just shut the door and get on my knees and cry. Because I just, I, I, how do I deal with all this? But as I, as I do that, so my heart can get, get ugly and it can get hard. But we can't let it, folks. If you're like me, and you've had moments where your heart just becomes like a stone in your chest, that's when you cry out to God and say, God, so true were your words when you said, at the end, and, and we're getting close to the end. 
that because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. I don't want to be one of those people, even as a believer. I don't want my love to grow cold. Do you? I want my heart to be soft. And it, it has to be. Will you pray with me today for yourselves and pray for me, and I'll be praying for all of you, that God would soften our hearts in a world that's making us calloused. Because of all the media and the news, I would encourage you, as much as possible, deliver yourself. I need to do the same thing. Deliver yourself from the lies and the deception. You're being lied to and you're being deceived. I don't know if you know that. I need to do this. As I'm pointing the finger out to you and exhorting, I got six of them coming back at me. We need to do this. We need to get our eyes less on the news and all the, the twisted, weird things that they're not telling us the truth. And we need to focus on the truth. It's right here. It's right here. Do you believe it? I believe it with all my heart. I love the word of God. It's bringing great stability in my heart. And it's given me a hope. And it's given me a love for people. Because that's the intention. Even when people, because I, I don't know if you noticed this, but if you looked at yourself in the mirror and go, man, you are a rascal. I looked at myself in the mirror and I was like, you know, you're just like a crusty piece of bread. Look at you. Unshaven, you look like, you just gnarly, you just, your heart is rotten, you look like the Grinch. You're a foul one, Mr. Grinch. You've got spiders in your soul. Right? I can. Can you? Can you look at yourself? <laughs> anyway, I'm beleaguering this point. Let's pray this week that God just softens our hearts and gives us a love for people that he died for. And they can be rotten just as we can be. But we've got we to rise above it all. And let's pray that God gives us that grace to do so. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's stand together. Lord, you know the truth more than even the things that I've said about myself, Lord. Uh, there are things that could be said uh, about my own heart that I don't even know. But God, I pray that you, Lord, with this, these things that you've been sharing with us, and Lord, that we would take them to heart, and that, Lord, you would speak to us, and that you'd soften our hearts, Lord. Soften our hearts with oil the oil of the Holy Spirit, Lord, would you soften our hearts to a world that has rejected you, to a world that's rejected your word, to the world that's rejected Christianity, a world who makes fun of us and makes fun of you. Lord, help us to love these people and to never cease to be as kind and loving as we can within reason, God, and help us to just have that right heart, your heart toward the lost, and help us to be about sharing that truth of the love of God with those around us, Lord. Even warning them of things to come if necessary. But the whole thing, the gospel is good news, but there's bad news too. And Lord, help us to be faithful to share it all. And again, soften our hearts, Lord, and bless us as we go from this place, Lord. Keep all of my brothers and sisters safe tonight and all throughout this week, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.